my name's Tom. I'm the vicar. It's great to have you with us. If you've got a Bible, if you would grab it and turn to the end of the Bible in Revelation, and if you wouldn't mind turning to chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through to 11. I'm going to read those to us now. To the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you as your victor's and I will I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Amen. Okay, so we are journeying into a new series, Revelation, thinking about eternity. We're, we're tracking through this book, and when you first read Revelation, it is, can seem pretty weird. It can seem bizarre. It's got kind of dragons and beasts and all kinds of stuff in it. But if you scratch the surface... You see that essentially what it describes is what does it mean when Christians and churches go through seasons of challenge. And so it seems apt today of all days that we land at the church in Smyrna because it is the church that Jesus doesn't rebuke, but it is a church that Jesus gives an encouragement to. And essentially we're going to think about three things today. We're going to think about God's presence, God's power, and God's providence. And the question that I want to start with, you're going to see it, a picture is going to appear on the screen any minute now. There you go. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, I sent this to Andrew uh, about five minutes before the, the uh, nine o'clock gathering, so he's made it landscape now. So thank you, Andrew. Well done. But here's a question. How does God bring beauty out of mess? That's sometimes a theme within Scripture, that that, that God brings beauty out of chaos, or, or God works all things for the good of those who love him. How does he do that? Because it's, it's easy to say, and we can say it, and it can sound like a platitude, but yet what we see through Revelation, that it's true. So how does it work? Yesterday, I was walking our dog. We've got a, a Labrador. I've some people have gave me feedback that I mentioned the dog too much, so I haven't mentioned her for a little while, but it feels appropriate to, to mention it today. And she's probably about 20 months, and if you know anything about dogs, and you, know, you know anything about Labradors, I think they're the best dogs you can buy, in my humble opinion. But they are full of life, and so whenever you go into a new situation, they are just exuberant and enthusiastic. And so we're out walking not far from here, 
And we are walking, that's, that's Stannington in, in the distance there, where we've got some friends who live there. We've sent a graft to be, be out. So I, as I was walking through the woods and then through the fields, I saw Stannington. I was praying for Nick Latimer, the vicar there, and the graft that have gone over there, having an amazing time. And as I, I walked on further, I just thought, wow, this is a I often think Sheffield is such a beautiful place to live. If you're here, you're visiting, probably God is telling you to move here because it's really beautiful. It's such a beautiful place. And then uh, I walked on further past us uh, through a, a pathway, stone wall on my right and my left. And I looked over, and this, this view caught, caught my attention because there was something about the field that was so beautiful. And, and I, I hadn't seen it before. I've, I've walked that place loads of times with uh, our dog and our previous dog. And, and there's something about this moment in the kind of summer just the beauty struck me. And there were two things about that beauty. The first thing was it was just wild, unadulterated weeds. Or we call it these days rewilding. And we're intentional about it. But, but God has been doing it for generations. And I just looked at it and thought, you can't, the picture doesn't quite do it justice, but there's loads of like buttercups and there's so much color, you can't see it in the picture, but it looks stunningly beautiful. And I thought, wow, this is weeds and they look amazing. And it was really interesting because when you step back, it looks stunning, but when I look close, you just thought, man, they, they really are weeds, they look really unimpressive. But yet you step back and you see the kind of vista from the perspective of looking out over the whole thing. You think, this is stunningly beautiful. So how does God use that metaphor in our own lives? How does he take things that are incredibly painful? Things that happen in our lives that we wish to God they had never happened. How does he turn them around? The Danes have, a, I know a couple of Danish folks, and they have a wonderful phrase. It's called piskan for disken, and it means fish on the dish. And for, I don't quite know how it works in the Danish culture, but there's this kind of view that if the fit, there's a fish and you just haven't refrigerated, you've left it out in your kitchen and it starts to smell. Why you'd ever do that, I don't know. But there's this phrase in their culture which is, okay, what is that weird smell? So let's get it on the plate. So this is a, this is a difficult day in the life of our church. Let's name it. So what might the Holy Spirit be saying to us today? What it might be saying to me today? What is he saying to you today as we journey through aspects of challenge or know people who are going through challenges? How can we serve them? How can we help them? So let's think about the context that this passage is written. John is in prison in Patmos, and he's, he's, he's praying to the Lord. He's a deeply godly man. He's an old man. And as he's praying, it says in the Spirit, he has a, he has a revelation of Jesus. And as God begins to speak to him, he begins to speak about these seven churches. And in my Bible, it's all in red, which signifies that, that it is the words of Jesus. He begins to speak about these particular churches, and there's an encouragement, and sometimes there's a challenge. But it's always about a word from Jesus, 
about how to stand firm in the face of persecution, how to stand firm in the face of culture, and how not to compromise. And it's a, it's a letter of compassion and of love, which signifies the cosmic spiritual battle that we are all in, and yet how victorious Jesus is in within it all. And the specific context for Smyrna is this, is that Christians are now being ostracized and marginalized in their city. They've converted from Judaism, and for a long time they've shared the, 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 the sense of safety that Jewish people, there is an exemption within Roman culture, which means Jews can, are, are released to exercise, to worship their own gods, providing that they pay homage to other gods. And there is this uneasy relationship between Jewish culture and the Roman state. And, but, but what happens is, is that Christians no longer enjoy that freedom. In fact, because they are seeing so many conversions, there are particular Jewish leaders who are beginning to say to the Roman state, you know, these, these Christians are just complete troublemakers. And so there is a concerted effort through slander to undermine what God is doing through the church in Smyrna. And one particular way is to turn off their source of finances. So what happens is this, is that if you were a builder or you're a craftsman, you're some kind of tradesman, you rock up to work or you rock up to the merchants to buy your materials and suddenly someone says, we're not serving you anymore. Why? Because, well, because you're a Christian. What do you mean? Well, we've passed a law that says anybody now has to worship Rome, but, but, but we worship Jesus. Well, no, I'm sorry, that's it, you can't work anymore. You suddenly find doors that once opened for you now close. There is a sense in which you cannot function as believers in the city in which you find yourself. All kinds of doors closing. And so what happens is they are experiencing material poverty. They, they can't function anymore. They're really struggling to make ends meet. They're looking after each other. They're sharing what they have. But they are really in a very difficult financial spot. The second thing is this. They are culturally isolated. The city pays people to worship the Roman gods. So there is no excuse. So you imagine you can't feed your kids and an official comes and knocks on your door and says, I will give you money to worship Caesar. And you feel the hunger in your stomach or you, you look at your kids or the people that work for you. You, think, you can almost imagine the heartbreak tension of if I just this little tiny compromise, if I just cross my fingers, then I can feed my kids. So there's state-funded worship. And the Christians are in such difficult place. And then not on, only on top of that is that the authorities are beginning to come and take some of them away. And in that system, in that judicial system at that time, you got placed in prison straight away, awaiting for your trial. So there's a good chance that a lot of them are going to go to prison. And, there's a, a, and of the ones that go to prison, some will head for execution. It must have been so discouraging. It must have been terrifying. It must have been gripped with fear, thinking, we've given all this up for Jesus. Where is he? Where's the joy? Where's the life in all abundance? Because right now it don't feel like it. It must have been heartbreaking. 
How do you move forward with that? And maybe that's how you feel right now. Maybe you, right now you're sitting with questions and frustrations and anger or you have a situation in your own life and you think, God, where are you? Because I'm reading the scriptures and all these people are singing it large, happy, clappy, but I don't feel that right now. Where are you? Where are you? So how does God bring beauty out of mess? Christians in Smyrna are in a mess. It's been terrible. It's been terrifying. We get a clue from stuff that Luke shared last week. In John chapter, in Revelation chapter 1. As John hears this prophetic call, he notices that Jesus is standing in the midst of the churches. So the first thing is this, is that we are assured and know of Jesus' presence in the mess of life. Now, that's important that we hold on to that because often in church life, we we think that God's presence is associated with good times and with times of celebration and jubilee or times when you feel in a good place to be able to connect to God or feel that sometimes we we have to hide the parts of our, our lives that are not particularly sorted or ordered or very holy. But there's something here that John is is reminding us that Jesus is doing, that in the incarnation, which is the posh word we use to talk about Christmas, that God steps into the reality of our lives. And so what happens with this revelation is is that John is, is saying to the churches, do you know, you are maybe in the biggest mess of it all, but do you know that God In Jesus Christ, the power of his Holy Spirit is fully present with you right now, even in the poo. In fact, he specializes in poo for, that's not even a word, but in poo times. The cross of Jesus did not look good at the time, but it was gloriously redemptive. So God is with you, and he turns his face towards the people. Lots of religions will describe a holy, powerful God, but only Christianity in Jesus is a God who steps in to make it possible. Only he makes the way possible. And in the Revelation, there is this reminder that God steps in, and then John in his old age, turns himself to see God. There is an invitation when we embrace God's presence for us to turn to God. When stuff happens, when we hear bad news, there is a response of fear, fights, flights, or freeze, or where we check the latest bank accounts and think, flipping heck, it's only early June. Where has the money gone? How are we going to pay for this? How are we going to pay for that? How are we going to... The temptation is to fix it, to step in, to, to, to step into the place of God and try and sort out our own lives. But John, in that moment of revelation, turns to Jesus. How about you? Is there an invitation from the Spirit of God to turn to him? 
Do you know, John gives us such a revelation of Jesus that if we had, we had an inkling of that, we would just be on our faces on the floor. Like this idea of Jesus as a little baby and cute and in the postcard and Christmas cards and Jesus driving around California going, hey man, peace and love, dude. It's like Jesus power. You can't mess about in his presence. It's this profoundly powerful image of God's presence. In the church in Smyrna, it says this in verse 8, it says, For these are the words of him who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, who died and came to life again. It is a description of the power of Jesus. In this passage, we get this word Christ, Pantacrita. Pantacrita. I've been trying to practice that walk in the dog this morning. Christ Pantacrita. It's this Greek word. It's from this image of Jesus standing over the whole earth. It is an image of Jesus, not as a tiny baby, but as Jesus as all-powerful. That it's, we, can't even, we can't even look at him. He's so powerful with feet like bronze. It's this image of Jesus being so powerful. So how does he, make, how does he turn difficult times? He, he assures us of his presence. And then he assures us of his power. What does his power mean? It means this, that he overcomes death. And as he overcomes death, he, he's crowned with life. And as we go through places that are painful and feel like an internal dying, it means we are promised the assurance of life through the other side. Because in Jesus' death and resurrection, there is the promise of life. There is the assurance he talks about, what John describes as the second death. Well, what the heck is the second death? The second death is this, is what happens to Jesus Christ on the cross, where he is cut off from the Father. It means this, if you're a believer in Jesus, you can never, ever be cut off from the love of the Father. So as you face the most painful situations, you can be assured not only of his presence, but you can be assured of his power. And his power is such that he is above the earth. He holds all things together. He defeats death. He breaks sin. He breaks cancer. He breaks COVID. He breaks depression. He breaks all kinds of things that mar and destroy the world around us. He breaks it in Jesus' name. And there's an assurance of hope to that church this morning. He says, don't be discouraged. You are going through it, but God is powerful. Lift your eyes. See the beauty that I am building in the mess. And then thirdly, there is providence, the providence of God. So God assures us of his presence. He assures us of his power. And his providence is this, is that Everything that happens is under his authority and his control. And when we talk of suffering and we talk of pain, this is the thing that we often never say. That suffering, and you see this in the scriptures, but we gloss over it because it's bad for business, folks. It's a bit, it's not encouraging. It doesn't make people laugh or jolly them along, but it's true that suffering makes us more beautiful to people around us because in suffering, we encounter the suffering Son, Jesus. 
you begin to realize your relationship with Jesus takes on a whole new meaning because you experience things that he, reject, that he, he experienced. So if you've gone through pain, he went through pain. If you've ever been rejected, well, you're in great company because he was rejected. If you go through physical assaults, well, he was physically assaulted. If, if people say stuff about you, people stuff, said stuff about him. So there is this aperture of time that opens up and all of a sudden you, you have a connection with Jesus that you would never have unless you have gone through a season of pain. And so what happened is Jesus is encouraging his church to say, the thing that you most fear could become your greatest opportunity to encounter my love, my power, my presence, and know my providence, that you cannot be destroyed. Yes, you'll go through hard times. But if you turn and face him in the midst of those hard times, he will make you like his son and make you shine for Jesus through those painful moments. So how does that work? Well, in the providence of God, it works like this. That Satan, the devil, has no jurisdiction over Jesus. Whatever he tries to do, whatever he tries to destroy, God will redeem and make it better and make it more beautiful. And C.S. Lewis in The Similarian, which is a kind of fairy tale, but it describes the power of God. He writes it like this, and I think it's apt and really helpful. God and the devil are having a conversation. And the devil says this, anything you make, I will destroy It's encouraging, isn't it? I'll bring it down. I'm the author of destruction. God says, you can't do that. And he says this, because anything I make that you try to destroy will only make it better. So then it goes on. The wrestle goes on and God makes rain. So the devil comes back with a counterattack and he makes it really cold. So what happens? God makes snow. C.S. Lewis says, and as those snowflakes fall, each of them unique and profoundly beautiful, that whatever the devil tries to do, God counters it with power and beauty in his providence that means this. There's an invitation from Jesus to each of us individually to turn like John and face him and see him. That means that we bring our grief, our sorrow, our pain, our questions, we don't hide that away, but we bring it to him and say, you are sovereign, you're above it all. I bring it to you. And we embrace the truth that whatever comes at us, God in his supreme power can use it and can turn it even when it makes no sense. 
especially when it makes no sense. Even when we, we have to give up our, 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 our right always to understand why we're going through suffering, all those things, that God can make something beautiful out of the mess. Hallelujah. Thank you. Because he promises his presence. He's powerful. He holds the whole thing. And he's provident. He's above it all. And whatever we face corporately, whatever you face personally, know that the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who knows your name, is interceding for you and has gone before you. And whatever you face, not only has he gone before you, but he has experienced and you can walk with a closeness and an intimacy that only he can bring. Amen. I'm going to invite the band out. Now I've asked, so I thought, how, how, how do we respond? I think this, what it feels to me today uh, is that the, the Holy Spirit in different ways has has just led us into time of worship at the 9 a.m. That's what happened. We sang slightly older songs, classics, but with great gusto. Sam, you'd have loved it, mate. And um, I thought what we'd do now is that's how we'd respond. We'd respond in worship. We'll respond before the one who is victorious, the, the one who holds all things together. And rather last minute, I've, I made a request of Sam that we'd sing a song called Firm Foundation. Do we going to be able to do it, Sam? Yes. What, what, a, what a Yes. Bless you, brother, that's very gracious. So I'd just love us to stand if we can. And it, and it might be as we, as we worship the Lord and together and as we, we sing this song... It might be that you feel called to kneel, or in the old days you call this prostrate yourself. Well, that sounds a bit painful, doesn't it? But it just means you literally lie down. And it's a sense of saying, God, you're God, I'm not. You're the one who's powerful. I'm not really. And there's an assurance in that passage, it talks about the synagogue of Satan, which sounds pretty intense, doesn't it? But it's essentially that the church is the gathering of God's people. It is the new covenant. God is with us by his presence, by his spirit. So we pray, Holy Spirit, in this place right now, that you release your power, that Jesus, you will give us an image and a picture of your unadulterated, profound beauty of your power, of your lordship, in Jesus' name. Amen.